Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we are live on tape from Dublin. In the Beatles universe, time has a very elastic meaning. They got a lot more done in a day than many people would get done in a week, and their months would often match people's years. And one month in particular, where they go in one end as one thing and come out the other end another thing, is November 1963. That's a a very important month, wouldn't you say? The birth of Beatlemania. Well, it is the birth of Beatlemania, and so at the start of the month, like as a big overall view, they they kind of get right to the end of October. They've put the With the Beatles album in the can, although it's not in the shops yet. Um, They head out on a big tour, and then by the end of the month, albums out, singles out, Beatlemania. It's an incredible transformation. This is the big year for the UK where they just become they, they move from being a band that just had a couple of hit singles to being a sort of social phenomenon yeah so you know I'm sure everybody listening to Nothing Is Real knows the general state of affairs but obviously you know in the 12 months leading up to November 63 they put out their first single they put out their second single they put out their album they put out another single and they are big pop stars we know that you know the Please Please Me album is number one in the charts for 30 consecutive weeks it lands there at the start of the summer and stays there for the rest of the year and those singles have been Love Me Do and Please Please Me and From Me To You and now She Loves You is the big hit single and they're they're a big act, but what people probably aren't really preparing for is the fact that they're going to be the biggest act. I think that's it. You know, up to this point, pop stars have a short shelf life. Let's <laughs> say that. Short, short, shelf, short life. shelf life. That's my vocal warm up. Short shelf. Short shelf life. And uh, so at this point, there is no indication that the, the Beatles are going to be any different. I mean, they're talking about this themselves. You know, they're going to go off and do other things. We'll write songs for other people. We'll open hairdresser shops, etc., etc., etc. This is the month when that changes. And I think I've said before, I always associate She Loves You is the big Beatlemania mm-hmm. single. In America, it's I Want to Hold Your Hand. But I always think of She Loves You as being the, the pivotal moment in the UK. And this this sort of dovetails in exactly with it. So they're selling out on their fourth tour. And up to this point, they've been, you know, a year before their bottom of the bill on a Helen Shapiro yeah. tour. Now they're topping their own tour and it's that type of package tour. Yes. And as you say, everything is kind of, there's a step change where everything is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And what the Beatles are going to kind of get at in the 12 months after November 1963 is just look at how big a band can get. Yeah. Um, you know, they become, to use a phrase we'll hear later on, like a showbiz phenomenon, the truest showbiz phenomenon uh, that we know. And it's kind of a bit of an unknown quantity at this stage because there have been people screaming at gigs before, you know, and they're not the first group to have teen fans or to have girls screaming or to have, uh, you know, a huge amount of mania attached to them. But the point is that they keep being themselves and the the mania is almost it, it's not that it doesn't matter but it doesn't really affect what they're what they're trying to do with their music and their art and their show and themselves I think that's right the the thing is that show business at this period particularly in the UK is not capable of containing the Beatles mm-hmm. so they start off uh, following the sort of tried and tested pathway for people, uh, you know, hit singles, package tours, variety shows, that type of thing. That's what show business is uh, in in the UK. 
Sorry, the sound is kind of subtly... Sorry, there was a wobble there. Was that okay? Fluctuating. I heard a little wobble. I'm sure it's not nothing. Okay. Okay. Show business in the UK really is not big enough to contain the band and what they will become. So they start off, they're sort of confined geographically by the UK. They're uh, constrained by the size of the venues. So they're playing theatres and cinemas. So it's 1,500, 2,000, 2,500 seat venues. But this is what show business in the UK is at this time. It's package tours, variety. The aim is to become an all-round entertainer. Maybe you do a film, then you go on to become a sort of TV variety act that all the mums and dads like. <laughs> the Beatles start off there, but they completely outgrow it. And by the end of this month, November 1963, it's clear that they are something else. That is very, very true. Now, we should also state, though, that this is not a small tour. No. So if we look at the, the, the stats for the tour, it's going to be a 33-date tour. Uh, so what's the total number of tickets that adds up to? Uh, 120,000 tickets are sold and you, you know the demand far exceeds that but there are 120,000 tickets are sold they're getting paid £300 per show that's what we get paid now that is nice yeah exactly that's uh, that's equivalent to £6,500 in 2023 but back in 1963 300 quid would have bought you a, a house with money left over for a car yes. so it's worth keeping that in mind um, and yeah, the, cumulatively, they would have had a gross on the tour uh, of about uh, £10,000, which is equivalent to about £220,000 in today's money for a, a month's tour. Nice work if you can get it. Nice work if you can get it. But um, it, what is interesting is, once again, to parlay that into modern showbiz, if a band was on their fourth hit single 12 to 18 months into their career, they'd be hitting the arenas, playing 20,000 yeah. people, uh, you know, grossing easily a quarter of a million a night or whatever or more. So they are trying to work in a, a place that they, they, they will turn out to define what modern entertainment means. But that's the... The, the the point of all of this that they they're they're in uncharted territory. So, first of November sixty three. What's the state of affairs? They start uh, the tour and uh, they start at the Odeon Cinema in Cheltenham in Gloucestershire. <laughs> Gloucestershire. We um, hope we're saying that right. <laughs> they are topping a bill with five other acts. So again, what you've got to remember is uh, this isn't sort of like a modern touring setup where you maybe have one support act and the that do 45 minutes or an hour and then a main act. This is, again, a package tour. So we've got the Rhythm and Blues Quartet. I guess they're a quartet that play Rhythm and Blues. Possibly. The Burnin' Girls, mm -hmm. the Brook Brothers. I like their shirts. <laughs> Peter J and the Jaywalkers. I see what they did there. And yes. the Kestrels. I don't like their beer. Um, Peter J and the Jaywalkers, fun fact, uh, they were riding high on their big hit Can Can 62, which, in a prototype bad manners type way, is their version of the can-can. I see. Yes. Uh, Peter J uh, uh, of Peter J and the Jaywalkers, do you want to guess what his role was in the band? Uh, did he dance the can-can? Well, good guess. He was the drummer. So in Dave Clark 5 rules, he wasn't the singer, he was the drummer. Um, but my favourite little fact is there was a, you know, the spin-off uh, once these the band broke up, as these bands tend to do because the Beatles ruined their dinner. Um, there was a chap called Pete Miller who, um, as a, a as Big Boy Pete, put out a single in 1968. Do you want to know what the name of that single was? Big Boy Pete. Big Boy Pete. You must have heard of Big Boy Pete. <laughs> We've all gone. No? No. Everyone knows a Big Boy I Pete, went, I, I went, thought. I, I went to school with a Big Boy Pete. <laughs> um, uh, he put out a single in 1968 called Cold Turkey. Excellent. There you go. So, Do you think John heard that? I think it's undeniably, you know, all connected and all of that. Um, but perhaps even more interesting are the Vernon Girls. The Vernon Girls. The Vernon Girls. They were great. A 16-piece, 16-piece <laughs> vocal group. The Vernon Girls were on the ITV show, Oh Boy, between 1958 and 1959, a series of singles for Parlophone. You can't possibly you know, keep 16 people <laughs> on the payroll. So by 1961, they were down to five and then they reduced to three. And by 1962, they'd moved from Parlophone to Decca. But they they were a popular singing group uh, mm. of the time. Uh, fun fact there is that they charted with the first Beatles tribute album in the US called We Love the Beatles. Good title. That's, uh, that would, that, 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 that's uh, I think we might have mentioned that before somewhere along the line. Um 
And they were a trio, uh, as you say, at the, this point of their, their the kind of greatest success. Uh, and they also appeared on the Around the Beatles special with the Beatles in 64. So they're definitely in the universe. But um, how should we remember the Vernon girls? We should remember them for the men they married, because that was the 60s and that's... I, I don't endorse Stephen's message here. But uh, but they did marry... Um, Interesting they did. figures, he they said, did. trying did. to tiptoe around the minefield of political correctness. Yeah, they uh, did. They did. So these these are not the three that were uh, current in nineteen sixty one Vernon girls. These are but former Vernon girls. So there was Lynn Cornell. She married a session drummer called Checks Notes, Andy White. Andy White, the Love Me Do hitmaker. The Love Me Do hitmaker. Okay, absolutely. Uh, Vicky, I think it's Hisman. Mm-hmm. She married Joe Brown hmm. uh, from Joe Brown and the Robbers. Yes. And they had a daughter, Sam Brown. Who had a big hit with the, Stop in the late 80s. And sang backing vocals on George Harrison's last song, Horse to Water. Ah. She also sang that at the concert for George, I'm led to believe. Yes, etc. Tick your concert for George card now. And uh, she also sang backup for Pink Floyd. And there was also Joyce Baker who married Marty Wilde. Yes. And uh, they formed a trio with Justin Hayward. I'm hmm. assuming that was a trio on stage and not... You know. Stop it. Okay. <laughs> uh, they were called the Wild Three. Well, you know. And <laughs> okay, they, maybe. Maybe. They, they are the parents of Kim Wilde. Kim Wilde. See, that's, that's a great... I mean, it's a pity there wasn't a Sam Brown, Kim Wilde, Wilson Phillips style supergroup. It's not too late. It's not too late. It's not too late. I'm going to call some promoters. That would be excellent. Um, Yeah, so the the, the Vernon Girls. And as you say, this is kind of an old school uh, review type show. uh, So there has to be a compare. There has to be a compare. And sadly, Dave Allen, uh, who has compared previous tours, uh, was not available. So this is Frank Berry. And again, just in a weirdly it's all connected sort of way, uh, his name is Frank, I think it's Broach Mm -hmm. uh, Berry. He's... Uh, Canadian, but he played the role of Lieutenant Dietrich in the film Doctor Strangelove, or How I Learned to Love Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. And what is the Beatles' connection with Doctor Strangelove? Uh, Peter Sellers. Okay, I'll, is I'll there another that, one? I'll give you the Peter Sellers one, <laughs> but even more directly, the uh, footage uh, that Stanley Kubrick shot of clouds yes. is used in Magical Mystery Tour for flying. The very same ah, footage. Ah, I never knew that. Good Lord, even I'm learning today. Um, so the uh, the band start the tour. It's the first of November, and you know this is where we're in full tilt. You know, Brian is involved, Neil is involved, Mal is involved. They're being looked after, um, but we're still kind of in uncharted territories about where do they stay or how do you sort out all the arrangements. Arrangements. So to speak. Yeah, it's a small entourage. This is the sort of slightly one step up from hurtling up and down the road. I was going to say motorways, but there are no motorways. Mm. When do motorways come in? You usually have a fax. <laughs> I did watch roads a, a BBC4 documentary about the M1, and I, I'm pretty certain the M1 is early 60s. So I think we might have had the M1, and that's about it. It's called the M1 for a reason. It was the first M... Uh, from motorway, um, but I, I, I'd have to, I'd have to that, check. That's fine. I, I, have, I, I just like I said, I've never watched the documentary about a motorway. <laughs> I, I, I have. That speaks volumes. Go on. So I was going to say they have a, they, they have a basic set list. Uh, should we just run quickly through the songs that you'll hear every single night? The same thing. Yes. Let's have a look. So um, starts off with "I saw her standing there." From me to you. Uh, All my loving. You really got a hold on me. Roll over, Beethoven. Boys. Till there was you. She loves you. Money, that's what I want. And twist and start. So it's worth looking at those because with the Beatles has not hit the shops yet. Mm -hmm. So the people on tour, you know, we all know that phenomenon of you go to a gig and they say, we're going to play something new. And you get out your rotten fruit, don't yep, you, normally? Yeah, yep. I and bring you, it with me. You throw it at them and then so you can go to the bathroom. Um, but the new songs that people would never have heard are, you know, uh, you know, with the Beatles classics, All My Love and You Really Got a Hold on Me, uh, Roll Over Beethoven, Till There Was You and Money. They're all due to come out on the, the new album. Yeah, so um, nearly half, you're approaching half the set list uh, is new material. And that's something we'll see kind of drop off the cliff a little bit as the Beatles tour over the next couple of years because it's a bit incongruous when we see 1966 footage and they're playing Twist yeah. and Shout still yeah. and, or whatever it is that they're doing. Um, but this is a very 
contemporary set list. Um, you know, it's got the mix of covers. Um, it's interesting. We'll come back to this a bit later on, but it's interesting to see that they, e- even when they hit the road and they're being megastars and the, the, the fame that they're getting is for writing their own material, they're still treating it as a club date. They're still adding in the covers. That's interesting. It is interesting. And they're not doing Please Please Me. They're not doing Love Me Do. So the first two singles have been consigned to history. Yeah. Um, so that is the set list. So how many of that? That's 10 songs, 10 short songs. Value for money. But you've got to see the Vernon Girls and Peter Jay and the <laughs> Kestrels. and All of that stuff. All of that stuff. So the tour on the 1st of November, as you said, starts in the Odeon Cinema in Cheltenham, Gloucestershire. Gloucestershire. Uh, 2nd of November, the City Hall in Sheffield. Yes. Now, my geography is not great, but yeah. I'm guessing Sheffield is not in Gloucestershire. No, it's not. We've been to Cheltenham. We have, but I've never been to Sheffield. <laughs> That's that famous song. Uh, <laughs> I've never... I, uh, uh, we went to Cheltenham to meet Roy Wood, which is exciting. Well, I and didn't go to meet Roy Wood. You I went, went to meet Roy Wood. And boy, did you meet boy, Roy Wood. Boy, did I meet Roy Wood. Uh, I don't like to talk about it. It's my concert for George, basically. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yes, it is... No, Sheffield is, you know, pulp country. I'm going to... This is very embarrassing that we don't know the mainland Britain geography. Yeah, but thing. it's north. What I'm saying is it's it's, it's... it's it's the other end of the country. It's people throwing darts in a map. Mm. You know, it's not... You would think in, in Cheltenham you would go one town over and then the next town yeah, up and go then to, the next town. Yeah, because they're going to go to Bristol on this tour. Bristol, so why did yes. they just go to Bristol? I they, know Bristol's near Cheltenham. Yeah, they yes. could go to Bristol. Um, um, but no, off to Sheffield, they go. Um, and what's going on in Sheffield? Paul gives an interview to the Sheffield Telegraph. Yes, I like this interview because there's a piece of foreshadowing here. You see, I put it in bold in the notes. And he says, uh, let's face it, we love it most of the time. Who wouldn't? All those girls going crazy for you, but now and then you just feel fed up with it. We're on five weeks of one night stands. The phrase in there is, now Now and and then. then. Hmm. If only there was something to be announced. Yeah. <laughs> um, you got to feel sorry for Paul when he says we're on five weeks of one night stands. Now, I th- he's probably talking about musical gigs, but yeah. I don't think he necessarily is talking about musical gigs. Really? Mm, well, you think he's talking about uh, recording demos? No, no, guess again. I think he's talking about encounters. 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 Well... They're, they're constantly being interviewed and filmed, so, yeah. you know, it better be discreet. Well, th- this is this is something that we'll see again and again throughout November 64. As you say, they're constantly being filmed and they're constantly being interviewed and the local papers and they're getting all the attention. And it's a world away from a year earlier when you can literally track one by one their first mention in a newspaper yeah. or their first appearance in their first hospital radio interview and all the rest. Now we're at a point where it's kind of impossible to keep up with the deluge of you know it goes in both directions people trying to get to them to get information and then trying to absorb all the information that's coming back out to the fans and it's um, yeah it's a different setup that the, the, what they are generating in, in the media Yeah I think they're constantly on show you know, yes. they're, they're, they're constantly on and they're constantly performing so not just on stage but they're sort of we we get to this where they're sort of larking around for the press and it's like you know oh, pull Ringo's hair or can you do this and can you do that and then constantly being interviewed so it's all part of Brian's master plan mm-hmm. but it's taking on a life of its own because the media knows this is the papers this is going to sell copy yes and there's this kind of thing that you see where when they are not on stage they are still the Beatles they are often well dressed well presented they're performing and well are they performing I think that's obviously their gift is that they the the reason that we still love them now that people loved them then was that they had this natural group charisma and that is part of the story and it's quite unusual that you know they're kind of creating a very modern showbiz thing of the stuff that happens between the gigs is just as interesting as the gigs itself nobody really felt that way about and he's brilliant, Cliff in the Shadows. You know, yeah. they were just going from one gig to the other. But yeah. the, the, you know, and the, the stories in the newspaper would be like, Cliff has bought a new pair of trousers to, you know, whatever. But uh, the Beatles show in between the Beatles shows is gold. It's the Beatles show. Yeah. Yeah, co- it's just constantly on. And this this all prefigures what we'll see in A Hard Day's Night. Yeah. You know, it's a room, a hotel, a train, a plane, a bus, a, another hotel room. But they're constantly performing. 
Um, and the thing that always strikes me when you kind of read this story, and I always like to think about what if the Beatles story had stopped at certain times, was that even if this had all faded away in 1964, mm. this would still be a fascinating little piece of history. If they, you know, even if they stopped releasing albums or they, they'd just all come to a crash, it would still be fascinating to say this was a thing that happened at this point in time, irrespective of what happens later. So it's, I think it's kind of important for us, um, you know, who well didn't live through it, to just imagine that, you know, nobody knew what was happening next. Nobody knew they were going to break America or do Sgt. Pepper or all the rest. So in and of itself, it's a fascinating phenomenon, If even if this was all they had done. Yeah, I think so. Even I wasn't living through it. I know. It's hard to believe. Third <laughs> <laughs> um, of November, they go to Leeds. Okay, Leeds is near Sheffield. Leeds I know is, that. I know that. I know, I know that, that. yes. Is, uh, and uh, the interesting thing that happens in Leeds is there's a bomb hoax. Good old days. Oh. <laughs> you can't say that. Um, yes, but it doesn't derail the show or the performance. It no, doesn't no. put off a Vernon girl. No. 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 Okay. Um, and then on the 4th of November, uh, they fly to London first thing in the morning. Why? Because London isn't anywhere near Leeds. That's, and the second reason why? Uh, they're appearing that evening at the 33rd Royal Command performance. Now, again listeners to the show obviously know the Beatles at the Royal Command or the Royal Variety Show as it sometimes gets called um, performance but this is happening in this context and there's a lot of things that happen across the month that add a bit of petrol to the Beatles fire and this is hugely significant so for those of us who um, you know are not staunch royalists Stephen what is (laughs) a Royal Command performance? I'm surprised you don't know this, Jason. Did I teach you this in school? Uh, no. It, it, it's the first <laughs> Royal Command performance, and there is a distinction between a command performance okay. and a variety performance. So a command performance is the sovereign mm-hmm. commands that you appear and entertain them. <laughs> like the, a jester. Like a jester. So the okay. first one was uh, 1848 by the order of Queen Victoria. You remember him. Yeah. <laughs> hey. Uh, yeah, it is essentially a variety performance uh, with a senior member of the royal family in attendance, frequently her late majesty, the queen. Uh, but um, here it was the queen mum. This is her official title uh, yes. in 1963. Uh, yes. Her royal magisterial highness, the queen. The queen mother. Mother. Yes. Um, so it's, it's a variety bill. So again, the, the important thing is this is a show that everyone will watch on television. You know, it will be televised. Mm-hmm. Everyone will tune into this. It's it's hard to imagine that now we have sort of a gazillion channels and nobody watches the same thing at the same time. But this is something that everyone will watch. So it's a, an absolutely key moment for the Beatles to be sort of beamed into everyone's home, or at least everyone who has a television. Yes. And yeah, there's three UK, no, there's two UK channels at yeah, this point two. in time. So BBC Two doesn't start until the following year. Um, so there's two UK channels and... You know, we've done shows before and the um, about the Ed Sullivan appearances and they're kind of seen as these yeah. very, you know, insane moments in time. But this is the UK version of the Ed Sullivan appearance um, where, you know, th- it's at this point where they kind of become inescapable and everybody will have seen them and everybody will have an opinion and knowledge of them from this point onwards. They're already huge. They've had their number ones. I'm not doubting that. But this is kind of a UK closest we have to like a UK Ed Sullivan everyone's watching the telly let's see what's happening kind of thing yeah you're absolutely right uh, Ed Sullivan is the royal variety moment <laughs> Ed Sullivan is the king of America yes um, so uh, the point of this thing is that it's variety so it's not all rock bands by any stretch of the imagination no no Tommy Steele's there he's not a rock man <laughs> no he's not so yeah they, they are actually they're not topping the bill I mean this is important as well they're not topping the bill they are seventh of the 19 acts on the bill tonight, this night, and the performers include Tommy Steele, Rockin' with the Caveman, is that his hit? Skiffle, yeah. Max Bygraves, Pink Toothbrush. Pink, t- pink Toothbrush, yeah, yeah, classic. Yeah. Harry Seagun, Seacum, sorry, <laughs> Harry Seacum. <laughs> uh, Joe Loss and his orchestra featuring... Well, featuring Ross McManus. So yes. here's where I go off on a half-hour uh, diversion to discuss. Do you want to just leave? Do you want to just... Yeah. Shut that door. Um, comedy props. We've got, uh, uh, yeah, Ross McManus was the singer in the Joe Loss Orchestra that night. Ross McManus is the father of Elvis Costello. And Elvis Costello was a uh, a young boy at this time. Elvis was born in 1954. So he's 
He's nine years of age. He's at home. His dad is on the Royal Command performance, singing with the Joe Loss Orchestra on a bill with the Beatles. And it's part of the connection that gets Elvis Costello into music. Elvis was already a third generation musician uh, at this point, so he was probably music was in the blood and in the family anyway. But when your dad comes home from a night's work with the Beatles, autographs, having stood on a stage at the Royal Variety performance with them, that's got to be a big imprinting moment. I would say so. And he talks about this in his autobiography where he, his father was learning songs. So mm. there's a, there's a Please Please Me, I think, is one that he, he writes about. But, you know, his father has these acetates that he has to learn the vocal arrangements and things like that. So, yeah, this is a big point. Uh, obviously, the highlight was uh, Pinky and Perky, <laughs> who are uh, pigs. Yeah. Puppets or things. And Luis Alberto del Parania a Los Paraguayos yes. or Las, Los Paranoias Los Paranoias again so it's all, all connected, connected. so yeah you'd wonder if that is the trigger for Los Paranoias all it's, those years yeah, later I, I, I would think so I would think so um, anyway getting back to Elvis Costello the interesting uh, thing no sorry I'm just joking <laughs> but you're right yes he, he has he, he, he's lost all his father's acetates apparently anyway um, anyone else on the bill of note Marlene Dietrich well now Mm-hmm. And the boys, these young men were happy about that. They were very happy about <laughs> this. And Ringo talks about this anthology. He said Marlene Dietrich was also one. I met her and I remember staring at her legs, which were great, as she slouched <laughs> against the chair. I'm sure she wasn't slouching. I'm sure she was reclining seductively against the chair. Yeah, well, one man's reclining seductively, etc. Uh, he said, I'm a leg man. Look at those pins. Yes. D- different, times, different, different times. Times, different he, times. Different times. Different times. 1996. Yeah, that was an uh, anthology uh, interview. Uh, <laughs> so it's the last century. Yeah. It's a long time ago. And uh, a relative of Paul's was on the bill. Paul's grandfather. What? Paul's grandfather. Mm-hmm. or his future grandfather. So uh, Steptoe and Son yes. uh, were on the bill. And uh, Wilfred Bramble, who played Dirty Old Man. Yeah, Harold he's Steptoe, very clean. Very clean. Yeah. Uh, he was on the bill. There you go. And the, 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 these performances now raise money for variety causes. They're kind yes. of charity events and all the rest. So. When we fall on hard times, yes. Jason. Well, they're, they're, any day now. Uh, <laughs> we, we can appeal to the Royal, well, I can, uh, to the Royal <laughs> Variety uh, Club of Great Britain. Yep. Actually, it's not Great Britain and Northern Ireland, I think. Oh, oh, no. oh, oh no. Oh, well. Anyway, I'll send the application in. <laughs> yes, they have, a, they have a, a nursing home full of uh, stars and all the rest, which... I, I, I think um, it's yeah it's Stella Street anyone who follows uh, Robin Asquith on Twitter I do um, he is often in this nursing home visiting Richard O'Brien and Mike Yarwood and I think if you're of a certain age and if you, if those names mean anything to you you're like I'm so glad they're all hanging out they're all this hanging out great. together and having a lovely time uh, uh, but I, it's still you know Will we be doing that, Jason? <laughs> I don't know. I can't wait. Um, so the Beatles' performance—they have—they um, have a set to do, and as I said, it's probably familiar to most of us. But let's let's walk through it because the the audio of it goes on to um, goes on to the first anthology album. So they kind of open by playing a little little kind of clip of "From Me to You," and a bit like the radio shows, just to kind of get them past the stage where the curtains open and they stroll yeah. out to the front so of the stage. They're, they're they're playing behind the curtain. Uh, and the curtains open sort of mid-tune and then they they walk forward you know they lift their own microphones I have to lift <laughs> uh, and the, yeah so they walk forward towards the lip of the stage to sort of bring themselves closer to the audience um, but then they kick things off proper with uh, She Loves You yeah big hit big hit that's the big number one hit at the time um, uh, it's 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 good there are you know again there's this legend in you know at the end of the live years in 66 oh we couldn't hear each anymore each other anymore we weren't a very good live band they are a good live band they are a great live band they at this are point. Yeah. greased and ready to go and you know Ringo is 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 kicking it um but the thing is again a bit like the set lists they don't do three originals it's odd that somebody wouldn't say listen you've had three original number ones do your three original yeah, number do, ones do but they don't hits. no uh so uh, speaking of greased and ready to go uh Paul <laughs> makes a joke about Sophie Tucker Mm -hmm. and then he sings uh, Till There Was You which is a kind of show tune and I suppose the argument is it's one for the mums and dads who are watching you know it's not a rock and roll number Mm -hmm. it's a kind of show tune and he introduces this by saying uh, this is a song by Sophie Tucker our favourite American group now this is a joke related to the fact that Sophie Tucker was a large lady 
fat. Mm, yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's the true. word you're looking that for. That is the is word. Fat. I was I was reaching for that. Yes, and uh, so so that's why it gets a lot of laughter because her size was kind of part of her. It was part of her act. Her, she, her she, USP, her brand, her, her USP, and she she jokes about it. She she has songs. Yeah. Say, you know, I don't want to be thin. Uh, she jokes about being fat and she uses that word. Uh, but this this did actually, a couple of months ago, provoke a lot of discussion on the <laughs> Nothing Is Real Facebook group. Where is there one? Said, there is one. There is one. There's three of us and we okay. all hang out. And, and uh, yeah, somebody said, uh, what, what does he make? Was he, was he making a fat joke? And there was people were outraged at the thought that Paul would make a fat joke. But he was making, yeah, he a, was fat making a fat joke. You know, yeah. she made she that was part of her act. Yeah, and yeah. So so if yeah, I hate to break it to you folks, it is a, it is a fat joke. But what's interesting again is you know as you say, yeah, he's doing this song for the mums and dads, which is if anybody, you know, watching on TV or in the audience is like, oh, here's those noisy ruffians, and yes. then you know they're doing this beautiful, gentle performance with George's fantastic guitar solo, which really like. You know, there's a lot of pressure there and it's exquisite. He nails it. He nails it and it's so competent and so great. Um that but even still they do this song for Mums and Ads, but they undercut it with the joke. It's so yeah. deft, it's so natural, it's it's fantastic. Paul has great stagecraft. He's and uh, you, you he's gonna go far. He's gonna go far. You mm. expect that from Paul. Um <laughs> but yeah, so then they Bring the microphones back. Well, I'm going to add one more thing, actually. Mm-hmm. Do you know there's still there's a band around today called Sophie Tucker? No. Oh, there's a band around today called Sophie Tucker. Is there? Um, they, and they spell it S-O-F-I-T-U-K-K-E-R. They've been around for about eight or nine years. They're uh, an electric, an American EDM, they call it. You know, electric, electro-dance music, kind of house music type thing. And they've, they've had songs and ads and all the rest. And uh, I had thought that they... Um, they they called themselves that in, in, in view to the Beatles because then you'd have a little clip of Paul saying it's our favourite American group Sophie Tucker which I think is very clever but the, the, the it's a duo and it's a guy and a girl and the guy's called Tucker and the girl's called Sophie yeah. so they have legitimate reasons but there is a band out there in the last 10 years called Sophie Tucker so Have you got in touch with them and told them to use that clip? Uh, no but I just assumed they have I, I assumed that's the joke because you know they they obviously know who Sophie. Somebody online has pointed this out to them in the last ten years. I mean, did you know Paul McCartney? And they don't they don't do Sophie Tucker covers. They don't do. So, they definitely don't do Sophie. That would Tucker be quite covers. funny. EDM versus of Sophie Tucker. Be a bit so. niche, bit niche. Um, but the other thing was when when Paul made that joke about Sophie Tucker, she was eighty years of age. Yes, because uh, she'd been born in eighteen eighty six, which is how old Paul is now. Well, he's eighty one now. So imagine some kind of 22-year-old going on stage now today and saying, oh yeah, this is a song by Paul McCartney that... <laughs> our favourite American, our favourite British group. Our favourite British group, you know, old dude, whatever, all the rest. So it, that's the that's the age gap we're talking about yeah. there, then and now, which is one of those mortality maths things that always interests oh, me, really. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yes, then you say, then they move their microphone stand back. Because they're going to do their final song. And this is the moment, I think, that sort of kicks everything off because Lennon makes his introduction to Twist and Shout. Mm. And he's told Brian he's going to do this. And he's told Brian he's going to drop the Mm F-bomb. So Brian is backstage (laughs) waiting to see what's going to happen. And of course, he says, for our last number, I'd like to ask your help. The people in the cheaper seats clap your hands. There's a kind of little ripple of laughter. And the rest of you, if you just rattle your jewellery, if you just rattle your jewellery, and he he ducks his head down. He kind of you know as oh I've made a I've made a funny joke, and uh, we'd like to sing a song called Twist and Shout. And that I think is the moment mm-hmm. that the press you know you can it's like that scene in Airplane where everyone is running <laughs> to, to the phone in their coffee and, and and yeah. Um, no, a hundred percent. It is the Beatles are inventing the water cooler moment. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. And yeah, he he wanted to say, you know, I'm going to tell them to rattle their effing jewellery was what he told Brian. Yeah. And, you know, again, it's one of these Beatle happenstances was, you know, he could have said that. He didn't say that. He ended up saying the right thing. It worked wonders. And, you know, the whole roller coaster of their performance between the songs they choose and Paul saying a bit and John saying a bit. Yeah, it, it's it's the coup de grace, and then they do kick off into a fantastic version of uh, Twist and Shout. Yeah, uh, it's a great closer, mm. and um, I think what's what's telling for me is the fact that. 
the difference between Paul making this Sophie Tucker joke where yep. he's very assured and kind of knows he's going to get the laugh. Lennon says the line and then, as I say, sort of ducks his head and looks yeah. as if he's kind of looking for a camera to look into to go, look at me, I've been cheeky, I've been, you know. Well, you know, I, I'm sure Mark Lewison could, would know if the Sophie Tucker gag was made many times on the stage of the yeah. uh, the cavern, you'd feel it had to. And yeah, so they do twist and shout. They win the audience over. They break into massive amounts of applause, which means we should take a break right now. End of part one. Intermission. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. End of intermission. Part two. Welcome back. So the crowd have broken out into rapturous applause for the Beatles at the end of their set at the Royal Command performance. They do their bow to the audience, the little traditional bow to the Royal Box. Lennon's not skipping that out. No. Um, but yeah, the, the thing is that the, the aftermath of all of this is huge and, it, you know, to the point that we're still talking about it today. And it was a very shrewd and wise thing to get them onto the show. The timing worked out very well. It was Bernard Delfont, wasn't it, who, who put the show together? Yes, he was the executive producer and the Royal Variety Charity website still waxes lyrical Yeah, about, uh, you know, it was a shrewd move on the part of executive producer Bernard Delfont to book the band onto the Royal Variety performance when he did. The timing was perfect. They were still the cheeky mop-top boys next door from Liverpool who only a year previously were largely unknown to the British public. They still <laughs> they still write in a 60s That's nice. style. <laughs> I say, fellas. Um, and it, it, it was on ITV and it's seen by 21.2 million people. And, you know, you're saying there, oh, there wasn't a lot of tellies. That's well, a lot of tellies. It's a lot of tellies. And uh, one news commentator said, never in all my years of observing royal variety audiences have I known this usually starts on their best behaviour audience unbent so quickly and completely. And this viewing figures were this, was certainly the highest ever viewing figures in the history of ITV. Uh, I don't know whether the BBC ever had the highest viewing figures, but at that point in time, it was the largest TV audience, uh, certainly for ITV. And yeah, they, they, you know, they got away with the rattle your jewellery quote. And the thing we start seeing creeping in in November 63, and we touched upon this in our Ed Sullivan Show episodes, but America is taking note of what is happening, of the phenomenon that is going on. So they're starting to file reports and mention them in newspapers and all the rest. So if you were a bit clued in to that side of things, you would have known about the Beatles by the end of 63? Yeah, so the first piece of US press appears in Time magazine on November 15th and the heading is Singers, The New Madness. (laughs) The New Madness. Um, And, you know, they're using the word Beatlemania, so... That's what they're saying. Beatlemania, the new madness is striking everywhere. The Queen Mother herself confronted the four Liverpudlians responsible and, you know, they're reporting from the Royal Variety performance, Royal Command performance. I'm trying to... I didn't know there was a difference. There is a difference. Now it's in my head. uh, Well, (laughs) I I like the fact to say the Queen Mother herself confronted the four young Liverpudlians like she sort of faced them down in some kind of West Side Story dance-off. But this is very important, this Royal what would you say, approval, so to speak, because yeah. it gives everyone else approval to not be against them. They, it gives people licence to, to love them. And we take it for granted now when there's some groovy member of the British royal family rocking up at a, you know, um, some West End gubbins. Um, but at the time, we have something here notable happening. It is something notable. And I think it is important that it gives... The mums and dads are allowed to like this group as well. And yeah. it blurs the distinction. And, you know, rock and roll up to this point has been Teddy Boys, uh, you, you know, slashing cinema seats. It's to be deplored. But now suddenly 
this is a veneer of respectability. Mm. And I suppose in one sense, this is something the Beatles will actively, particularly John, turn against and resent that they yep. had to do this. But this is absolutely key to their universal success in Britain. And as you say, it's being mentioned uh, in uh, in America. And Paul says in uh, Anthology, you know, the Queen Mother said, where are you playing tomorrow night? Because the tradition is the... The, the, whoever the royal representative there meets all the acts afterwards and uh, Paul says oh Slough and the Queen Mother says oh that's just near us <laughs> so it is Windsor near Windsor yeah. Yeah. and uh, the Queen Mother also said in retrospect you know it's one of the best shows I've seen the Beatles are most intriguing where are the horses a handbag <laughs> um, and uh, thanks for Hinge and Bracket for doing that impression and uh, George said you know it was very good the audience was much better than we expected and I think that's a bit of a, you know, we expected the audience to be awful. But he's he's right, you know. I think if the, if you're running around the country and you're playing for screaming groups, yeah. you're like, we're doing the Royal Command performance, which old showbiz, it's a stuffy thing. It's a stuffy thing. I, I think he means, you, you know, he they weren't expecting them to be as receptive. Mm. Um, and as we all know, it turned out to be just a, a one-off, not for the want of asking. No, they asked constantly they were being asked uh, to do this but they always made it clear they wouldn't do it Uh, the next year uh, they had a couple of days off and they deliberately booked uh, Belfast Mm. so that they wouldn't be available that's the sort of uh, uh, extent to which they went to avoid it but um, John talked about this in 1970 and was broadcast in anthology and he said we managed to refuse all sorts of things that people don't know about. We did the Royal Variety Show. He didn't get that right. And we were asked discreetly to do it every year after that but we always said stuff it. So every year there was a story in the papers why no Beatles for the Queen which is pretty funny because they didn't know we'd refused. That shows a bad gig anyway. Everybody's very nervous and uptight and nobody performs well. The time we did do it I cracked a joke on stage. I was fantastically nervous but I wanted something to rebel a bit. And that was the best I could do. So by 1970, he's got his twisty head on, mm-hmm. doesn't like it. But the other thing we have to remember that is, is in 1970, you know, you'd wonder, has John seen the footage of the Royal Command performance uh, recently? Has he seen it ever? We're used to now just dialing it up on yeah. anthology DVDs or on YouTube. But it was a moment in time which by the time you get to 1970, you couldn't really reference it. No, I mean, I think it, it's not accessible. He probably hasn't, certainly hasn't, wouldn't have seen it since... It was first broadcast, mm. if they watched it at the time. And uh, it's, you know, five, seven years in mm. the 60s, from 63 to 1970. The, the world has changed. They Absolutely. have changed. And he is rewriting, I think, in his head. But, uh, you know, he was in a particular headspace yeah, in 1970. But Paul was not joking when he said, the following night, 5th of November, they're in Slough, near Windsor, um, back on the, the trail. Back on the trail and being reviewed by the top newspapers of the day, including the Chronicle and Echo. Mm. And they said, every flick of slim tailored hips, every clap of hand and tap of winkle picker was echoed with wave upon wave of screaming. It's poetry. That's beautiful. Um, And Brian leaves the tour at this point. Yes. So he flies from London to Idlewild uh, Airport in New York with uh, Billy J. Kramer. Hmm. Planning, planning to make plans. As planning to make plans, yeah. And uh, note that the airport is still called Idlewild at the start of November. Um, the tour progresses the 6th of November. They're in Northampton, uh, Slough to Northampton. I don't know, what's that? I don't know. I'm sure Mal was using his Google Maps to, to figure that out. Um, but then we get to the 7th of November. Uh, at the Adelphi Dublin, don't look forward, it's not there. Hooray. Well, it is sort of there. Well. The facade is there. It's yes. a car park. Um, and if only there was some kind of way of delving down into what happened at the Adelphi in Dublin. Yes, more deeply. Someone should do a, a, a deep, deep dive. Deep dive a on, deep dive. yes. Um, yes, we've we've done our Beatles in Ireland live episode and if you'd like to go to BBC Sounds and listen to Give Ireland, Give back to the, give oh. the Beatles Back to the Irish. Oh. Do you want to do that again? I don't know, really. Should I give the Beatles Back to the Irish? Um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had to think of that. Yeah, we had to think way. about it. Inside yeah. baseball, folks. Um, yes, they played the Adelphi Dublin, which is now marked by a blue plaque on the wall, unveiled by Gay Byrne uh, before his untimely death. Um, and it was a riotous, literal performance where people were in the streets going crazy. 
rioting. Yes, that's yes. what I would say. Yes. You know, yeah. like that's a good riot. Dublin for you. Yes. <laughs> it certainly is in 2023. Um, the, um, uh, and then the next day, as we recounted in our other series, they go off to Belfast. Yeah, they're, they're at the Ritz Cinema and I definitely don't, don't look yeah. for it. It's not there. Uh, it's uh, it's now, um, I was going to say juries, but it's now Leonardo's. Hmm. And I'm, I'm reliably informed by... Uh, uh, our American correspondent and resident young person, William Hinson, mm-hmm. who was recently in Belfast mm. and marched up to the reception desk. Got a march when you're in Belfast. In the hotel, mm-hmm. it's true, and uh, demanded of the young man <laughs> <laughs> behind the desk, did you know that the Beatles played here? And he went, yeah, I think so. I think there's a photograph in the staff room. And William insisted on being marched to the staff room to look at the photograph. So... Fantastic. It's more than I've ever done. I know. It's, that's brilliant. Um, but they are back over on, open inverted commas, the mainland, close inverted commas. <laughs> that's fine. You can say that. I can say that. No one else. Yes. Anyone in Britain wants to know where the mainland is, turn around and... Look out a window. Look out a window. Um, and on the 9th of November, they're at the Granada Cinema in East Ham, London. That's nowhere near Belfast. That is I definitely, know that. Yes, know that's that. definitely far away. Um, so, yeah, they, 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 they're at a party with a washing machine tycoon. Well, it's what you would do. Well, it's a bit like, I don't know, has Ed Sheeran been hanging out with James Dyson? That's kind of what it's like. That's kind of exactly what it's like, yeah. <laughs> so, John, John Bloom invites them to his house at uh, Park Lane. I know that's a swanky area mm. of uh, London. Yep. And uh, he, he is a washing machine tycoon. He has a company called Rolls Razor. And what he was doing, the famous uh, washing machine wars. Famous. Famous. Yes. Uh, between 1962 and 1964, where he was deliberately undercutting the price of other washing machines. It's fascinating stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, This is usually my... I'm yeah, fascinated. Yeah, well, yeah. You're, you're all about motorways. I'm all about the washing yeah, machines. Yeah, yeah, go on. And, uh, so, so what happened was he sort of engaged in all this litigation about trying to undercut, you know, the standard recommended retail price. Mm. And, uh, you know, he was so successful that I think some politician referred to Harold Wilson as being the, uh, you, you know, the John Bloom, the John Bloom of politics. Of politics. Yeah. And uh, but by 1964, this had all collapsed around him and he was bankrupt. But he was by all <laughs> attempts, all, all accounts. He was, by all accounts, trying to get the Beatles to It's invest. odd that that model of selling washing machines below cost price and living on Park Lane didn't pay off for him, that he did go bust. Yeah. You'd think that'd be like a rock solid. It's it, like the Bitcoin of 1963. Inexplicable. Inexplicable. <laughs> fun, uh, yes. fun, fun fact about John Bloom. It's already fun. Yeah, it's already fun. But this is on Wikipedia. Okay. Uh, sorry, I'm, so it must be true. I'm lifting a veil, so it must be true. It said uh, he introduced David Bowie to an agent and uh, David Bowie credits him with being pivotal in his uh, success by introducing why David Bowie ended up at his house at a party we'll just draw a veil okay um, hmm, I have some theories about John Bloom. I think I might need to go off and research them. He's deceased, so you can say what oh, I like. I can say what I like. Yeah. Okay, I think you know what I'm thinking. Um, then on the 10th of November, uh, they're in the Hippodrome in Birmingham, London to Birmingham. That's not a bad drive. That's that's fine. England's second city. Yeah, and um, yeah, it's still an eventful trip. The car breaks down and the police are called. And uh, later on, they escape uh, from the mad and cried outside disguised as policemen <laughs> and the police and the guardianship and minding the Beatles and the cost and all that that's all brewing in the background as a bit of a controversy so. it is I mean the cost of providing police protection for these reprobate rock stars is mm. uh, is being debated in the highest yes are they corridor. worth it are they wonder. worth it are they worth it but, but also on this day yes Julian Lennon is christened mm. and this is sad really because John doesn't know. He doesn't know. He's not there. He doesn't even know about it. And when he does find out, he's not pleased. I can kind of understand why he might be not pleased. But when was he going to do it? When was he going to do it? No, I think he just didn't want it done. Oh, is that it? Yeah. Um, I think it's more, you know, he's... Yeah, yeah, you know, Anyway, it's his own fault. He was in Birmingham dressed as a policeman. <laughs> that old excuse. Um, on a more business footing, um, George signs a piece of paper today, Harry Krishna. He signs a five-year publishing deal with Northern Songs Limited. Mm. Fun fact, he yes. gets a better percentage out of that than John and Paul did. But he's still not in full ownership. But He's it, not still still not in full ownership. But, you know, it's a, by 60 standards, it's a good deal. But he has already written a song 
Uh, don't bother me. It's yep. not come out yet, but it is published by I don't know how to pronounce this. Jeep, J A E P. Oh yeah, which is James Epstein music. Ah, so it's a kind of stopgap. Uh, why he didn't sign to Northern Songs for that, I don't know. Maybe he just produced the song, and, and they were like, "Oh, cr- we better get yeah. a deal for this yeah, guy." Yeah. Um, it is interesting that Northern Songs is the first port of call that there hasn't been anything learnt in the year of dealing with Northern Songs they're still seen as a safe pair of hands so that's where George to go it is yep. also interesting that he signs a time limited deal it would have been a very different universe if in 1968 or even 67 once five years had run out that um, Paul and John were free agents yep. for their publishing that, that, that would have been a very significant change it would have changed potentially the fortunes of Apple um, if they had signed up for you know something that would have under under you know subsidised you know Apple as a true publishing for John and Paul's work, um, it's a, it's one of those what ifs I guess. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, the eleventh of November, they are uh, not touring, but they are working. They are working. This is quite a famous clip. Um, I think it appears in an anthology where they're they're in the back of two cars, so George and and Ringo in one car, John and Paul in another, and there's sort of lights, and it's kind of quite I imagine from. For 1963, quite a, a technically challenging mm. thing to kind of film, and the the film isn't great because there's lights and but they're just sort of driving around in the back of cars, giving interviews about uh, what it's like to be a Beatle. Yeah, and yeah, it's 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 a very striking kind of interview. It's very it again feeds into this thing of the what they're doing between the shows is as interesting as the shows themselves. Yes, and you know the phenomenon itself is is an interesting thing. And we mentioned that Brian is in New York at this point, and he is basically negotiating the Ed Sullivan appearances at this time. So he's not even on the tour day to day, but this is what's happening in parallel. Yeah, so he's negotiating for the Beatles' appearance, Jerry and the Pacemakers, and he gives CBS TV one year's exclusive rights to the Beatles uh, on uh, U.S. television, which. You know, you might argue is quite limiting, mm. but I think in retrospect, it was exactly the right thing to do. Well, I, I guess, you know, the, the place where people could have, you know, appeared on television in terms of, you know, it's not going to necessarily stop the Beatles from appearing on news programs. No. And it's not going to affect, you know, if somebody wants to show a clip of the Beatles or talk about the Beatles, they can do that. And, you know, Brian is probably thinking about what the lie of 1964 is. They're not going to be spending all their time in America. And if he has one network on his side and that's what it takes to get this billing, then that's what it takes. Obviously, they're not going to go until they have their first number one. But but somehow they are in the papers, appearing on television already and negotiating an appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show. But yeah, that must, that must have been a clause of the contract we didn't yeah, see. This, never this contract will go live when we have our first... Yeah number one because that's how contracts work that must be it yes that's right I will sell you my house when I've had my first number one tell that to my solicitor um, so Brian is not there um, which might explain why on the 12th of November they have to postpone a concert because Paul is sick Paul is sick hmm. well you think if Brian is there he could have stood in for Paul I think Brian is there he would have been like uh, get on the stage yes yeah come on I, we don't need come this on, it's 30 minutes it's yeah. 30 minutes can you not just you know. you know not boke for 30 minutes um, yeah, he's got gastric flu and he's uh, he's unable to perform on the 12th of uh, November. So it's a day off. For the others. Yeah. yeah. Wow, great. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, literally, this the only time they get a day off is one of them is sick and the other three have a day off. Yeah. And uh, so that uh, gig actually gets rescheduled into the end of the tour. Yeah. So they don't, they don't cancel the gig completely. And um, then we get to the 13th of November and this is still only the 10th show of the tour. And they're at the ABC Cinema in Plymouth. Um, so I just have to go. So they've missed the guilt. I'm still trying to think of the geography in my head. But they're in Plymouth. That's yeah, the they're, south they're, somewhere. They're in Plymouth. Well, they would have been in Portsmouth. So they're not on the south down the coast. coast. Down yeah, the yeah. coast. Okay. Um, so they do two shows. And they're interviewed for uh, the ITV show. This is a great title. Move Over, Dad. <laughs> I, th- I think we should do a podcast called Move, Move Over, Over, Dad. Dad yeah. And uh, it described itself as, quote, a gay new show with the accent on the beat of the young. Hmm. Different times. Well, that sounds more like a, yeah, Channel 4 shows yeah. in, in the 1980s. Um, so, yes, Move Over Dad, made by the Westward Television Company. There's a blast from the past. Westward Ho. Yeah, I, I miss the ITV regions. Um, 14th of November, they've gone to Exeter. Um, and again, ABC Cinema. So this oh, is yeah. a big chain of cinemas and they're sort of between 
1,500, 2,000 seats. So they're, they're playing to packed houses, but they're, by comparison with what will happen in 64, 65, 66 in America. Mm-hmm. But this is all there is. We don't have that type of venue. And I think no one has considered, we could put them on at Wembley Stadium. Yeah, yeah That's, no, just, not, that's yeah. just not a, a thing. Um, and so we get to the halfway point of the, the month on the 15th of November, where they're playing the Colston Hall in Bristol. Can we still call it the Colston Hall? We can't call it. The, well, we can, but it's not called the Colston Hall anymore. It was a venue called there on the site called the Colston Hall from 1867 until 2020. Um, but it's not called the Colston Hall anymore because, uh, well, why? Uh, checks notes, slavery. <laughs> Pretty much, yes. So um, Colston himself was uh, a man who did a lot of uh, business and was involved in slavery mm-hmm. and Bristol Port and you can go to the M Shed Museum which I have done and learn about the uh, you know the Bristol Port was a, a very I don't know what the word is busy mm. uh, slave trading port and Colston made an awful lot of money he reinvested a lot of that money into philanthropic um things in the Bristol area including this venue the Colston Hall and the Colston Hall is on Colston Avenue and um, have you ever been to the Colston Hall? I never have. I went to the Colston Hall uh, once. I saw Ben Folds there and Ben Folds has a trope where he will make up a song on the spot and he will orchestrate it and play it and get the band to play it. So uh, the night I saw him in the Colston Hall he um, he wrote a song about the Colston Avenue toilets uh, which is a very catchy ditty about how he somehow had to use the Colston Avenue toilets outside the the, the Colston Hall. But it's not called the Colston Hall anymore. It's called the Bristol Beacon. It was renamed in 2020. They, uh, and um, Is it on Bristol Beacon Avenue? Uh, as far as I know, it's still called Colston Avenue. Uh, the venue itself, it's a very nice venue. It was, um, even though there's been something on site since 1867, it was... Um, uh, rebuilt in 1951, the current core venues from 1951, because you know Bristol was, um, you know, suffered a lot of bombing during World War Two, mm-hmm. um, but uh, the Colston Hall was not bombed. But in 1945, somebody dropped a cigarette and burned it to the ground, which seems kind of unfortunate. Was it a sort of <laughs> Nazi a Nazi cigarette fifth columnist? <laughs> I don't think so. Um, but uh, you know, Colston has also had a statue toppled in 2020 as well. So um, I'm sure uh, listeners in the UK will remember the moment, the moment, uh, the yes, trial, the trial, the, the acquittal, issue, the yes, where um, um, you know, in in the wake of the George Floyd protests in 2020, they toppled the statue of, of Colston and, and threw it into the uh, the River Avon, where it was fetched out and shown in a museum the following year. But yeah, the people who did it were acquitted, and it led to all sorts of commentary, all sorts of uh, shenanigans, shenanigans. Yes, that's exactly what we're on about. Um, but yes, but that brings us exactly to the halfway point of the tour. They're getting a lot done, aren't they? They're getting a lot done. And uh, Paul gives an interview to Ray Coleman on this day. Mm. And Ray Coleman will be a sort of fairly constant presence in their life, uh, sort of between now and well, right right into the post-breakup years. But Paul says, we have our rise, nothing serious. Mm. But... Very unusual, I would have thought, at that stage for a band to be admitting to having rise at all. Yeah. You know, in this show business world, it would always be sort of, you know, Paul McCartney's new kitchen or John <laughs> Lennon's new car or yes. what, what have you. They're not going, yeah, yeah, we do have rise, but nothing nothing serious. Uh, so, again, they're, they're being a little less unguarded, I, I think, than other. Tommy Steele would never admit to having a rise <laughs> with his... Little White Bull. <laughs> Joe Brown. I've had a go at one of the brothers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but 30 Days has November. This is the 15th of November. We're at the halfway spot and that is where we are going to leave it. We're going to continue the story of November 63 in part two. It's very exciting, isn't it? It's very good. Part the second. We've got, we've, we're going to have two parts. <laughs> it's my favourite number of parts. Um, but for now, we remain available in all the usual places. The website, nothingisrealpod.com, which is your gateway to all the fantastic stuff. Uh, the Nothing Is Real Facebook group, X, uh, Beatles Pod, and um, uh, there's a, we're on Mastodon and Instagram and uh, what's the other one? Occasionally TikTok. And we're just generally about and we always like to hear from you all. Um, but for now, my name's Jason Carty. My name's William Henson. (laughs) My name's Stephen Cockcroft. And this has been Nothing Is Real. Thanks for listening.
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.